Hello, everybody. We are going to have a series of speakers. I'm the first one. So thank you for coming to our session on behalf of myself and the other two to four speakers. I can't figure out if it's three or five. I'm going to talk for about 15 minutes. My background is that I started a company called Listen.com, which created the Rhapsody Music Service, which um, I eventually sold to Real Networks, and they sold about half of it to MTV. And by the topic of the conference, I'm guessing most of you are familiar with Rhapsody to some extent. And what I am now is I've basically become a science fiction author. My first novel, which is called Year Zero, was Random House's lead science fiction title for the summer of 2012. And I thought about bringing a copy and waving it around, but I decided that'd be a little bit crass and sort of home shopping network. But I did print it on my business card, and it looks like that. So if anybody, you're not actually supposed to see that. So what in the world is a serial entrepreneur doing launching a science fiction career. And to sort of put that into perspective, I'll tell you a little bit about the story that I wrote. Year Zero is the story of a vast alien civilization that is so into American pop music that it accidentally commits the biggest copyright infringement since the Big Bang, thereby bankrupting the entire universe. And all of the wealth in the universe is now owed to us and to our record labels. And we humans don't know it quite yet as the action of the book starts. Now, the aliens are in trouble because for reasons that are baked deeply into the storyline, and we can all save a lot of time by just suspending disbelief on this point, they're obligated to honor and obey our copyright laws and to pay the fines and penalties that are associated with breaking those laws. And this is problematic because it turns out that our copyright laws are, to quote the leading authority on alien copyright laws, which is my own damn book, the most cynical, predatory, lopsided, and shamelessly money-grubbing copyright laws written by any society anywhere in the universe since the dawn of time itself. Now, that may sound strangely emphatic until you consider the fact that I'm sure a lot of you are aware of that the maximum fine for pirating a single copy of a single song in the United States is $150,000. And to put that into perspective, the maximum fine for drunk driving in this state of California is roughly 157th of that amount, which does make perfect sense, provided that you believe that while drunk driving is a terrible thing, music piracy, again, to quote my authoritative source, leads swiftly to meth addiction, human cannibalism, and societal collapse. Now, what happens is this self-appointed delegation comes to Earth to fix all of this. And they very quickly realize that in order to do that, they need to reverse this complex thicket of international treaties and laws that literally go back centuries. And they decide, you know, we really need to recruit a very, very special human ally. And it needs to be somebody, they think, who has immense artistic credibility because they assume that we revere our musicians as much as they do. They're a little bit off on that, but they're aliens. You can forgive that. And secondly, they feel that they need to get somebody who has unbelievable political might, somebody who through sheer force of will can take this entire mess and reverse it. And so they're doing their research and they're thinking, you know, maybe Bono? And they kind of entertain that idea. But as they're digging around, they find out that the most powerful media law firm in the world is called Carter, Geller, and Marx. I made that one up. And at Carter and Geller and Marx, there is a young man named Nick Carter. And they're like, Bono Schmano, we got ourselves a Backstreet Boy. Because for those of you who are not aware, there is a Backstreet Boy named Nick Carter. And so they're very excited. They've got this Backstreet Boy. He's one of the most influential music lawyers on earth. They come to earth and present themselves, and they find out to their horror 
that no, this is not Nick Carter, the Backstreet Boy. In fact, he kind of can't stand the Backstreet Boys. And no, he is not the founding partner of this immensely powerful law firm. He's merely a very low-level copyright attorney who happens to have the same very common last name as the founding partner. But the horse is out of the barn, the die is cast, pick your analogy. The aliens are now stuck with Nick Carter, low-level copyright attorney. And they are dependent on him. He has 48 hours to reverse this incredibly complicated situation or something terrible is going to happen to the Earth. By the way, that's the first four pages of the book, and then it sort of goes on from there. Now, you may not guess this from my plot summary, but I'm actually personally a very firm believer in the sanctity of intellectual property rights. I am an author, first of all, and I write copyrighted work for a living. And I built a company, Rhapsody, whose model was to license music from the record labels and actually attempt to sell it back in the height of the Napster era, when that notion was a very, very kind of exotic and avant-garde notion. So why did I write an entire novel, which, among a number of other things, spends a great deal of time poking fun at copyright law? And the answer is that I think that things are getting very, very out of control in the realm of intellectual property. And all of the crazy extensions that we've seen to copyright law is really just one manifestation of it. And basically, my fear is that we're getting to a point where companies are increasingly using laws and lawyers and litigation to fence off their markets and stifle innovation. And we're seeing this in lots of areas. We're seeing it in patent trolls. There was an extraordinarily good and in-depth article in the New York Times yesterday on the subject, which I'd recommend to anybody. We're seeing it in wireless companies dedicating an enormous amount of energy and managerial attention to trying to get their competitors banned from markets rather than putting their energies into innovation. We're seeing it with Apple trying to patent the rounded rectangle and almost succeeding. They didn't quite. And uh, a few weeks ago, Christian Louboutin, a, a, uh, a designer, basically got the exclusive right to make non-red shoes with red soles. We even see companies successfully patenting human genes, which are products of nature, which in many cases go back hundreds of millions of years. So the purpose of intellectual property laws is, of course, to encourage and reward innovation. But increasingly, they're being used in a diversity of areas, not just in copyright, to stifle innovation, to veto business models, and to strangle startups in their cribs. And to meanwhile turn essentially obvious ideas, naturally occurring phenomena, and innovations that basically have alleged innovations that have centuries of prior art preceding them into government-sanctioned monopolies. So using copyright as a snapshot of what happens when an interest group hijacks an arm of the government and basically uses it to rewrite society's laws to its own interest. We'll use copyright because that's what I'm most familiar with. It's obviously something that everybody here has some experience with, but we see similar things happening, perhaps most chillingly, frankly, on the patent front right now. But in the case of copyright, the hijacked arm of the government is the intellectual property subcommittees or the judiciary committees of the House and the Senate. This is where all intellectual property law originates. That's where that $150,000 maximum fine for swiping a song came from. That law is called the Copyright Damages Improvement Act. It was passed in 1999 by unanimous votes, not just in the committees, but in the House and the Senate themselves. Now, Laws are supposed to be statements of our values and our priorities as a society. 
So given that we have that law and that we have this other law that says the maximum penalty for drunk driving is $2,500, what is the legal system telling us as a society? I mean, is it basically telling us that swiping a copy of My Sharona is worse than downing a fifth of vodka and getting on the 101? That's obviously lunacy. And it it doesn't take a, a lawyer to realize that it's lunacy. And um, it's not just insane in comparison to criminal law, but in, in comparison to every other form of civil law that I've been able to find. Now, the standard in civil infractions is what's called triple damages. What that means is, if I can demonstrate that your negligence or your extra-legal shenanigans have cost me or caused me a dollar of harm, I can sue you basically for $3 of restitution. Now, that is the standard in antitrust in racketeering, even in something that sounds remarkably like intellectual, or I'm sorry, copyright uh, theft, which is willful trademark counterfeiting. But swipe a $1 song, and it's not a three to one ratio of restitution, it's a 150,000 to one ratio. It's off by a factor of 50,000. And people see this, and they just know intuitively, doesn't take a lawyer, there's something that's really, really odious here. So why do we care about this as a society? I mean, obviously, there's reasons why tech companies that might get sued and people who have narrow interests that are threatened can be concerned about this or should be. Why do we care about this as a society? Well, the first thing is, laws like this don't inspire any respect at all. They inspire contempt. They inspire contempt for the bodies that pass them unanimously. They inspire contempt over time for the very institution of the law, which I think is a terrible thing for society to start suffering from. Over time, I would say they also start inspiring contempt in certain circles for the very notion of intellectual property. Because these aren't just hypothetical rules. People see them getting enforced frequently. Um, As I'm sure a lot of you know, just a few weeks ago, uh, a woman had a $222,000 judgment upheld against her for uploading 24 songs, which was actually pretty good. She got off light. That was 10 grand. A few weeks prior to that, uh, a Boston man's appeal for a retrial was denied. He was charged $675,000 for uploading 30 songs. People see this and they know intuitively this is radically disproportionate. And this level of contempt sort of arises. And it's not just the laws that get contempt in Congress. Um, my feeling is that it's also the beneficiaries of the laws that start looking not like uh, property crime victims who merit sympathy and respect, but like the coddled favorites of a ham-fisted government. This worries me as a peddler of intellectual property myself. If my book gets pirated, I would like to be viewed as somebody who merits sympathy and respect. Um, but I think that that is starting to, to fall out. Now, the other issue that I think is potentially very dangerous about intellectual property law running amok is it has it can have the potential for a devastating impact on innovation. Um, so I'm going to tell you a story. Back in 1999, humanity actually dodged a very serious bullet. In that year, the recording industry um, filed a lawsuit against Diamond Multimedia, the creators of the first mass market MP3 player, with the objective of making open MP3 players illegal in the United States of America. It was a closely fought thing, a very closely fought thing, but ultimately the court ruled in favor of the MP3 player maker. Now imagine what would have happened if things had gone differently. If MP3 players had been outlawed in the United States in 1999, a time when assault weapons were not outlawed, um, 
Apple certainly never would have developed the iPod. Had Apple never developed the iPod, there is absolutely no way they would have ever developed the iPhone. Because in developing the iPhone, they leveraged technologies and expertise and market capitalization that the iPod got them. Without the iPhone, we certainly would not have the iPad. Now think of how many billions of human hours have been enriched, have been saved, have been made more efficient, etc., by these media furnaces that we all have in our pockets right now or in our backpacks or wherever they live. Um, and think of how many lives have been saved by the fact that there is connectivity and unlimited information at pretty much every physical point in society or almost every physical point. All of this would have been foregone if the music industry had succeeded in, in basically banning a technology that they found to be potentially inconvenient. And thank God that did not happen. So I would say that we dodged a bullet in 1999 and a significant one. And the question that I ask you is how many bullets are we dodging now? We live in a world in which one guy gets to make shoes with red soles. We live in a world in which startups are regularly strangled in their cribs by patent trolls, and we live in a world in which the DNA that you were born with is the patented intellectual property of somebody other than you. Um, copyright law is but one manifestation, and I think in a lot of ways it's not the most scary one. So I am an author. I create copyrighted works. Um, the creator of Rhapsody, which was very, very diligent about licensing music and paying creatives and, and paying rights holders. Uh, and I believe very, very firmly in the sanctity of intellectual property for both of those reasons. But I'm really chilled to my core uh, about what IP laws, lawyers, and lawsuits are doing in our society right now on a number of fronts. And I think it really threatens our prosperity in a fundamental way. And um, happy Columbus Day. So um, I think we got a couple minutes for questions, and the request is that people go to this microphone to pose questions, and if there are no questions, we can just dive into the next speaker. All right. I guess I answered all the questions. Thank you. 